Isn't it good to sing of our hope? Amen? You may be seated this morning. I'm going to dismiss the children at this point. You can head downstairs to the Gospel Project and uh, have a great Sunday morning, kids. My name is Jeremy Callie. I'm one of the elders here, and I have also been the last several weeks uh, with Covenant Church, our church plant. And so if you haven't seen me in a while, that is why, but it is great to be at renovation this morning. Mike is uh, at Covenant this morning, so we swapped. Um, so it's, it's awesome to be with you here. My name's Jeremy Callie, and uh, isn't it great? I mean, I know I already said this, but, but to sing aloud, to hear each other sing of our hope, our confident expectation in Jesus Christ. Amen? Our hope in life and death, that we will rise with him. Um, so good to sing that song with you this morning. We're going to continue our series in Matthew. So we are um, in our 25th year of preaching through the book of Matthew. Um, and we're going to, I don't even know how long it's been. It's been a while. Um, but we, uh, we're kind of heading down to the, the, the end here of this gospel. Um, and so we are in Matthew 21 verses 12 to 17 this morning. If you have your Bible, please turn with us. If you don't, it'll be up on the screen. Um, or maybe you got an app on your phone, whatever works. Let's read it together this morning, and then we're going to pray that God would speak to us through his word. So Matthew 21, verses 12 to 17. And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. He said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, And the children, crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. And they said to him, do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, yes. Have you never read out of the mouths of infants, nursing babies, you have prepared praise? And and leaving them, he went out of the city to Bethany and lodged there. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Pray with me. God, we ask this morning that you would speak to us through your word. You have written your word to us, and we open our hearts this morning. Pray that you would illuminate to our hearts the truth of your word. Thank you for being with us. Be glorified in everything we do this morning. In Jesus' name, everybody said, amen. Well, Harry... Markopolis. Anybody heard that name before? Harry Markopolis worked at a Boston investment firm in the early 2000s. And Harry was given an interesting assignment by his boss. His boss said to him, I want you to investigate this exclusive non-registered hedge fund that is making insane amounts of money. I want you to investigate it And I want you to reverse engineer how it's working so that we can get the same kind of return for our clients. They were a competitor. 
And so Harry embarked on a journey to investigate Bernie Madoff. I'm sure most of you have heard of Mr. Madoff. He ran this exclusive hedge fund. Now, it was one of those hedge funds that the rich and the powerful and the famous got to be a part of. You couldn't just be a part of this thing. You had to be invited. It was exclusive. It was, uh, uh, it was thought of in such a way that, man, it was getting such returns, such a return on investment, such a profit it was making. It was thought of, if I could only get to know somebody who knows him to maybe get invited to be a part of this, and if you were invited and, and allowed to invest with Bernie Madoff, then, man, you were with the premier financial genius that was going to make you much more on your money than any other hedge fund or investment could possibly do. And so Harry went on this investigative journey. He was very, very good at math. Uh, and he began to investigate the Murdoff hedge fund to try to reverse engineer and figure out how to do that for his clients or for his investment firm's clients. And he says on 60 Minutes, when asked, how long did it take you to figure out what was going on with Bertie Madoff's hedge fund. He said, how long did it take you to figure it out? He said, well, listen, nobody would have ever suspected fraud. I mean, Bernie was well thought of. Bernie was a former boss of the Securities Commission. He was, he was, uh, he was uh, well respected. He was someone that everyone wanted to be around, everyone wanted to invest with. So no one would have expected fraud unless they did the math. And he said, I did the math and it took me five minutes, five minutes of math to figure out it was fraud. In four hours of mathematical modeling to prove that it was fraud. Now, Bernie was so powerful and tied in with the people in charge that it took years of reporting to the SEC what he had found before his arrest in December of 2008. And then everybody found out, right? Anybody remember this? Like, it was like, what? I mean, everybody found out this exclusive, amazing $50 billion hedge fund was a complete fraud. It was nothing that anybody thought it was. It wasn't at all doing what it was supposed to be doing for its clients. And the victims lost billions of dollars. Well, Jesus in our narrative, has just come into Jerusalem on a donkey, and he's heading to the temple. This is a moment where two million Jews are traveling to the temple to worship for the festival, and they're coming in from all over to gather. And we saw last week that Jesus came in and and had just healed Lazarus, or healed him, raised Lazarus from the dead. And word was spreading that Lazarus had been raised from the dead, and so uh, people were lining the streets. Palm Sunday, Jesus is coming in on a donkey as a fulfillment of prophecy, and they are, they are screaming in the streets, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed be the name of the Lord. They're, they're crying out to Jesus as he rides in. And just after this brief triumph, right, this is really... Uh, Palm Sunday is really a brief moment of triumph. 
Jesus now comes into the temple where everyone is there to worship and everyone is there to give sacrifice and millions, two million people are coming in to do that and Jesus goes into this place where the worship is held, the, this place of, of incredible uh, significance, inc- incredible importance. And man does the narrative and the atmosphere change, right? We've gone from Palm Sunday, Hosanna, Hosanna, to flipping tables and running people out. Well, we need to look at a little bit of context here and uh, just do a little bit of background and understanding of, of what Jesus is doing. Lest you think Jesus is just losing his mind. Lest you think Jesus is just in a fit of, of child temper tantrum type anger. That's not what's happening here. As we see from other narratives, Jesus had been to the temple the evening before, and now he's come back and has contemplated what he saw. This is not a fit of anger. This is not a child having a temper tantrum. Jesus comes back, and what does he see? Well, as we look at our passage in verses 12 and 13, we see this. Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple, the overturned tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he said to them, it is written that my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers, thieves. What we see is Jesus comes into this portion of the temple, and what it's referring to is the walled um, second temple complex that was built out and enlarged by Herod the Great. We're talking about an outer court where the Gentiles were allowed to come. This is an outer court where uh, the Gentiles who could not go into the more inner part of the real temple where Jewish men were able to worship and give sacrifice, they had to stay on the outside. And this was the area where they would have been allowed to come and pray, where they would have been allowed to come but what had happened to that outer area that was literally like massive, this is a 172,000 square yard, it's 35 football fields large. And this was the area where they would be able to gather. And in this area where they would have been giving prayers, it has now been turned into a place where money's changed. You have people coming from many regions with all different kinds of currencies that need to change their money to the money that would be recognizable in Jerusalem. So that starts out as a really good service to those who are traveling in for this festival, traveling in to worship at this important time. And so they come, and there's money changers. We also see that they're selling pigeons, turtle doves, smaller animals to be sacrificed because the poor who couldn't afford sheep would come and buy, according to the law, they'd be allowed to buy a smaller uh, pigeon as a sacrifice, and that would be acceptable. But we also see something else. Well, the travelers, they weren't going to bring their sheep or bring their pigeons or turtle doves with them through their journey, so they would leave those things home so that they could travel and then buy them in Jerusalem. The priests were in charge of examining the sheep and seeing if it was a spotless lamb and seeing if it was acceptable to sacrifice. And what was happening here 
as, as Jesus called, said that you're turning this into a den of robbers or thieves, we see that there's a little bit of a, of a price gouging going on. If you, look, if you read uh, some of the historical context, read Josephus and some other folks that talk about this, they were charging 50 times the cost of a pigeon for sacrifice than they would have outside the temple. That they sold in that outer court 250,000 sheep within the temple at that time. That they were exchanging money at usurious rates, 6 plus 6%, like over 12% money exchange as people would come in and try to get the appropriate currency. So what Jesus observed was that area that was supposed to be an area of prayer, an area of, of, of worship where the Gentiles could come, where the lame and the sick who were not allowed to go into the holy place, were not allowed to go into the next layer of the temple, those who would have been outsiders, who would have been kept out, had a specific area where they were allowed to come and worship. And that whole area was filled with money changers, people selling doves, people selling sheep, and ripping people off at usurious rates and exorbitant costs. They're making a buck. The temple was not supposed to be that. The outer court was not designed to be a place where the priests and the people that worked could rip off those coming to worship and pray, steal their money at usurious rates, where the priest could examine a sheep brought, or a lamb brought from the outside and say, that's not an acceptable sacrifice. You need to buy one here at this price. It was not what it was supposed to be. It had turned into something else. Jesus comes in and he sees this. What had begun as a good service to those traveling had now become exploitation, had now become a distortion. And Jesus cries out in a righteous anger. He walks in. And you might say, who, who is this to do this? Matthew has been answering the question throughout this gospel of who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? And we get a picture of who Jesus is in this moment. Jesus walks in not as another traveler who's coming to worship, Jesus doesn't walk in as another Jewish man who's coming over Passover to give sacrifice and to worship as another Jewish man. Jesus is coming in as the Messiah, as the Son of God, and he states it as he flips the table, as he flips the chairs right out from under the men sitting there, ripping his people off and runs them out of the outer court, and he exclaims, my house, my house. How does he say that? Because it is his house. It is his father's house. And he is the son. Therefore it is his. And my father's house is this house of prayer. And you've made it into a den of thieves. And in righteous anger Jesus runs out those who would distort what is supposed to be happening in this moment. How powerful is this? Who is this Jesus 
Some would look at this passage and say, he's out of control. He's in a fit of anger. And I would declare to you this morning from the word of God that this is a moment when his just and righteous anger should occur and is justified. Amen? Well, but didn't Jesus say the meek should inherit the earth? Is he not demonstrating his own sermon on the mount as he preached about meekness? Yes. Yes, he is. Jesus didn't say the weak. He said the meek. The meek is one whose sword is sheathed and remains sheathed. The meek is one who is capable but restrains that capability in loving and appropriate ways. If it was the weak, meekness would not be a virtue. Weakness means you have no choice but to be run over. Meekness means you are competent, you are capable, you are strong, but you choose kindness and meekness. And at appropriate times, you are able in righteous anger to do what's needed. And Jesus demonstrates this in this moment as he flips tables and flips chairs and runs the thieves out of his father's house. Amen? What an example he is to us. Jesus says, my house shall be a house of prayer. What are you doing? Ripping people off in this area. Engaging in widespread commercial commerce in the place where the Gentiles, in the lame, in the sick, are meant to come and be able to pray. This is a house of prayer, and you're selling stuff like it's a mall, and you're ripping people off, and, and the people who were supposed to be able to worship and pray in the outer courts can't do that because there's commerce going on everywhere. 250,000 sheep, thousands and thousands of turtle doves and, and pigeons are being sold. You're exchanging money at usurious rates, and where are the lame? Where are the sick? Where are the blind? Where are the Gentiles supposed to go to pray and to worship? That's what this place is for. And he runs them out. And I love that he doesn't stop there. We see in Matthew's narrative of this story that he goes on. Look at, verses, look at verse 14. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple. And he healed them. But when the, when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things he did, and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. So Jesus takes this area that has turned into a den of thieves and robbers, and he acts on those who are physically needy. He turns it from a place where commercial commerce is happening and he turns it into a place where he's now meeting the needs of those who were supposed to be in the outer courts. And he heals the blind. He heals the lame. He gives peace and healing to the needy 
who have come to him. How remarkable. This occurs in the outer temple to those who don't have access. The blind, the lame, the Gentiles, no access. Jesus turns that upside down. He gives them access to the only one who can bring healing and peace. Amen? Those seeking peace, prayer, forgiveness, and healing, Jesus delivers for those who have been kept out. It's hard not to reflect on that and recognize this morning as we look at the Word of God that that is us. Amen? Boy, I think that's where I have to place myself in this narrative. I am one who would otherwise be kept out. Jesus offers peace. He clears the area set aside for their prayer of merchants and commercial dealing, and he casts out those insiders, and he welcomes the outsiders. This is what it's supposed to be, folks. This is what you've made it and what it's become, but this is what it's supposed to be. And he demonstrates for them again how it's supposed to be. And the religious leaders get mad. They get indignant, according to Matthew. How dare you? Jesus heals those who would be kept on the outside. So many looking for peace. So many looking for answers. Do we not have that today? So many searching for answers. So many searching for peace. Young people marching in the streets. Pundits arguing on cable news. People asking questions and wondering how we could get this peace, how we can solve these issues, how we can get these problems resolved. And everyone in, in that regard looking in the areas where it's not to be found. And yet Jesus offers it. Jesus is here. He's, he's there. And he comes into that place. And all of those who would be seeking forgiveness of sins and, and the Passover sacrifice and peace in their life and turmoil for those bound in sin and frustrated in their lives as, as the male Jews are allowed to go into the inner area and, and give sacrifices where the sacrificial altar stands and the Gentiles supposedly, and the lame and the blind supposedly being able to pray and seek the Lord in this place. And Jesus says, it's right here. He comes and he brings it to what it's supposed to be. He offers that peace to us. So many of us look everywhere else for it, and he's here. We see in Luke 13, Jesus looking over Jerusalem. Before the triumphal entry, where he comes in on the donkey, and he laments. He laments and he cries. And he says, oh, my people, oh Jerusalem, how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. 
And we see Jesus in these moments as he's heading into Jerusalem, weeping over his people, lamenting over his people. I would have gathered you like a hen under my wings, and I would have, I would have gathered you like chicks and, 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 and protected you, but you were not willing. And we see Jesus' broken heart over those seeking him, but not him, seeking peace in all the wrong ways. And he's saying, I'm here, I'm here, and you didn't see it. There's an opportunity that you missed, and he's lamenting and weeping over. And I believe that if he were here today among us, among us, he would look around Syracuse, New York, and our area in North Syracuse, and he would weep and he would lament. How I long to bring you under my wings and, and like, like chickens with, with their brood, but, but you're, you're, you're missing it. You're missing the point. You're seeking it elsewhere. The peace is right here that you're looking for. Well, Jesus' activity models and fulfills prophecy as he goes into the temple and does this. We see in Hosea 6.6, God prefers mercy over sacrifice. Jesus demonstrates that. The religious leaders are incensed, they're indignant at Jesus, his miracles, and the messianic overtones of the children's cries. Don't miss that. Not only is he healing the blind and the lame and demonstrating who he is, who is Jesus, he's the Messiah, and he's healing, not only that, but the children probably echoing the cries of their parents as he came in on the donkey, are crying out in the outer courts. They're echoing Psalm 118, 26. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. And so the children are quoting Psalm 118 as they cry out to Jesus, and the Pharisees are not happy. Pharisees look at him and and they say, they, they say, do you not hear what these kids are saying? And I love Jesus' response. Have you not read? Of course they've read <laughs> Psalm 8. He's going to quote Psalm 8. Have you not read Psalm 8? And he's really pointing out their obstinance, not their ignorance. Their obstinance to who he actually is. The answer to the question, who is Jesus, is obvious in the mouths of the children. And he points out to them obstinance, not ignorance. And he, and he says, have you not read Psalm 8? Haven't you read it? Out of the mouths of babies and infants? Out of the mouths of infants and nursing babies, you have prepared praise. Psalm 8 continues and says, you've established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. And what do we see? Another prophecy fulfilled by, by Jesus. By contrast to the Pharisees, the children's praise causes God's adversaries to cease. Out of the mouths of babies, nursing infants, they cry out who he is. Psalm 8 is worship from the mouths of babes to God. And Jesus declares, have you not read? They're worshiping 
God. He's pointing out who he is by quoting Psalm 8, by pointing out, have you not read that these children are declaring the truth of who I am, and he is proclaiming his own messianic reality, that I am God, that as Psalm 8 says, these children will worship God, they are worshiping me. Have you not read? And he declares who he is to the Pharisees. Who is Jesus? He is the Messiah. He is the one Psalm 8 speaks of. He is the one Zechariah speaks of. He is the one Hosea speaks of. He is the one who was prophesied about. And he is fulfilling the prophecy at every turn as he stands and cleanses the temple as Zechariah and and Malachi both predicted. As he rode in on a donkey in fulfillment of prophecy. And as the children cry out to him in worship in Psalm 8, he says, that's me. Haven't you read about it? That's me. Who is Jesus? To flip the tables and turn the seats, he's the son of God. And his house will be a house of prayer. Who is Jesus? As children cry out, he is the Messiah. He is the son of God. You know, sometimes I think we look really good. And maybe this is a moment for us to get introspective about our house. Sometimes it looks like a lot of great worship things are happening. Sometimes on the outside of our temple, We put on a facade, we put on a smile, we shake hands, we come into this place, and we go through the exercise, and maybe there's a moment for us to take a look inside. Maybe this is a moment for us to reevaluate our own lives and life of worship as it pertains to our own hearts, and maybe it's time for some of us to flip some tables. Maybe it's time for some of us to run some things out of our own heart with the kind of zeal that Jesus ran out the money changers and flipped the tables. You know, we're prone to put on the facade. We're prone to put on the face. We're prone to just engage in the activities. But Jesus was going after what actually was happening in the temple because it wasn't what it was supposed to be. It wasn't like Bernie Madoff's exclusive, wonderful club where people made more money than everybody else because as you dug down underneath, it was corrupt. It was exploitative. It was hurting people and not helping people. It wasn't really facilitating the worship of God. It was facilitating a facade, a scheme, something that had nothing to do with what God intended it to be. And and I know that I'm prone to self-deception. I know that I'm prone. My heart is wicked and evil. And I'm prone to these things. And so this this passage, I believe, as I've reflected on it, calls me to a place to to reevaluate my own heart and to say to myself, am I worshiping and living a life of worship with the kind of genuineness that the gospel calls for, that's intended by God? 
Or am I more worried about looking good and making out okay? Do I reject those who belong but don't look like me? Do I reject the needy and the blind and the lame? Do I live a life that's open to uh, access those on the outside to be on the inside? Those who Jesus came for. Those who Jesus demonstrates over and over and over again through the gospel. I'm here for them, not for you. I'm here for them. And he does it again as he flips the tables. And all the insiders are running out and scared. Jesus brings near to him the blind, the lame, those who would be kept on the outside. And and as we reflect on our own hearts, are we only open to those we love to be around, that we have an affinity with, that look just like us, who are doing okay, who are fun to have a barbecue with? Or are we here for those Jesus is here for? Have we opened our hearts to those on the outside coming to the inside? Maybe it's not as fun. Maybe it's a little rough around the edges. Maybe it takes some time and some some effort and some love that hurts a little bit our convenience and our, our well-being and maybe our financial security and maybe our comfort. Maybe we need to get a little uncomfortable and allow others to be in because that's what Jesus would do. Jesus has come for those on the outside of whom, if we're honest with ourselves is us in so many ways. Finally, this place must be a house of prayer for all who would come and seek Jesus. Let's ensure that in this place, And in our own hearts, it's about coming to Jesus, it's about prayer, and it's about seeking the Lord, and not seeking some other benefit that we might gain from status, from maybe even our service sometimes as we serve. It becomes a position, it becomes a status, it becomes something we pursue is a way to get ahead. Let's check ourselves. Let's check our hearts. And let's reflect on the reality of the gospel and what this place is supposed to be. This is supposed to be a place for those on the outside. This is supposed to be a house of prayer where people can come, people can seek the Lord, people will be accepted, ministered to, and find the one who can actually bring peace. Find the one who can actually bring healing. Find the one where, as we sang today, our hope is found. Not just I hope so, but our biblical hope, our confident expectation that we are in Christ and he will do what he said he's going to do. Amen? I love this passage. I love who Jesus is and what he does in this moment. 
And let's just take a moment this morning and reflect on it. Because those folks who were so easily swayed to shout in the streets, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. That crowd who shouted in the streets, it's so easy. Hey, maybe he can help us. Let's shout. Give me a palm. I'll wave it. Hey, that's the dude that raised Lazarus from the dead. Maybe he can throw this Roman oppression off our backs. He's pretty powerful. Let's all shout and scream because I think this dude can help us. Those so easily persuaded to shout Hosanna, Hosanna are very soon to be the same crowd shouting, crucify him. Give us Barabbas and kill him. Let his blood be on us and on our children. How easily that turns with this group of people. How easily sometimes it turns with us. Jesus didn't come to overflow, overthrow the Romans on a quarter horse with a sword and in, in, a, in a war. Jesus came to save to die for the Jews, for the Gentiles, for the blind, for the sick, and for the Romans, for the soldier that stood beneath the cross and said, surely this is the Son of God. He came to give his life as a substitute for them, to receive the punishment we deserve. He was the Lamb that they were sacrificing in that festival. He was the spotless lamb that would pay the price for many. And he's worthy, the only one worthy of genuine worship that we would come and we would every week worship him in spirit and in truth in this place. And that we would throughout the week worship him with our lives. He was pretty angry. Righteously angry. When his father's house was turned into that place. And let's seek him. That our hearts would not be that place. And that this church would not be that place. That we would come with purity and with truth and reality in the way that we worship and seek him. Amen? We get this opportunity right now to worship him in a way that he prescribed. With actual physical elements that we hold, that we touch, that we see. Because Jesus knows us, right? And we are prone to forget what's most important. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says he comes to preach to them what is of first importance. Jesus Christ crucified. He says in, in chapter 2, I don't come with eloquent words of speech or fancy sayings. I come knowing nothing else but Jesus Christ crucified. The reality of, of the, the death and burial and resurrection of Christ, the gospel 
is the central focus. It is of first importance. And so we come every week to remember and to contemplate the reality of what Jesus has done for us. And he has given us this gift. This isn't something we're doing for him. This is something we're receiving, this gift, as we come to the Lord's table. In these elements of bread and juice that represent his body and his blood that was spilled for us. And so this morning, we're going to take a moment and reflect on that. And I, I would just challenge you as you do that this morning, don't do it lightly. Let's not just make this moment a brief time in our service where we take a little sip of juice and eat some gluten-free bread, okay? Let's take this moment in our hearts and self-examine. Is this house truly a house of worship? In my heart, am I coming, reflecting on the reality of the gospel, in worshiping in spirit and in truth, in my own heart, or do I have other motives? Do I have something else going on? And this is a good moment because we all do to again repent and turn. Some of you struggling this morning with recurring sin in your life. And you're frustrated. And you're hurt. Maybe even you're disgusted in the way that you've hurt others. And this is a moment you can come reflecting on the reality of the cross and the gospel. And you can repent. Say, Jesus, turn me, and I'll be turned. And know this, he is faithful just to forgive us of our sins. He has paid the price. He is where peace is actually found. It's not in those other things. And maybe you've been running everywhere else trying to find peace. This is where you need to come. Maybe there's unforgiveness between you and someone else. Someone's hurt you. There's bitterness in your heart. Paul's clear in 1 Corinthians 11. Don't come to this table with that kind of bitterness in your heart. Recognize God's forgiveness and his great sacrifice and, and release forgiveness to others. Maybe you need to go to somebody today so that you're not playing pretend as a Christian in this place. Maybe you need to go to someone today and extend forgiveness and extend grace because you've held up bitterness in your heart. This is a moment as we come to the table to make those prayers, to have that moment in reflection of the gospel as you hold these elements and contemplate the reality of the cross. Amen? I'm going to ask the servers to come forward. If you're here this morning and you have received Christ and you're relying on him,